Welcome to the Texas Home Improvement Super Podcast with Jim Dutton. All the best calls this week throughout the state of Texas. Brought to you by Floor and Decor. Largest selection of hard surface flooring and lowest prices guaranteed. Yes, it's cold. And if you look at the wind chill, it's extremely cold. Well, when you're worried about freezing pipes, unless you got a pipe sticking up out in the yard, you really don't have to worry about the wind chill. What you're more worried about is what the actual temperature is. And if you got pipes inside the wall and we're going down to, you know, 27, and I know we're, we're expected to go down a lot lower than that tonight, but we're not going to get to the point where you're going to have to worry about a hard, hard freeze on your pipes in the walls. It's the pipes, though, that are not behind insulation that you're going to have to worry about. If, if you've got any plumbing in the attic that's not wrapped, or covered by insulation, it can be a problem. And a lot of people, oh, well, our pipes are under the slab. Where's your water heater? If it's in the attic or the garage and it's got pipes exposed going to it, they need to be wrapped. Your hose bibs need to be covered, whether you use the little styrofoam cups or you go ahead and just wrap it with a towel or something. It needs to be covered. And, like, I have a uh, tub a wash tub in the garage, the pipes on it need to be protected. Now, that's whether in the garage like that, you can either wrap the pipes or put some type of heater out there to you know make sure the temperature doesn't get too cold. The problem with this freeze isn't how low the temperatures are going to go, it's how long they're going to stay down. And that's the reason we need to have everything protected. You know, when we get those cold fronts where we drop the temperature down to 12 degrees and we stay there for you know two or three days you know stuff is going to freeze but even though we're coming down and tomorrow we're going to go up a little bit and then monday uh tuesday we go up again a little bit we're going to be down below freezing for like 72 plus hours stuff will start freezing if it's not protected don't leave it dripping though if everybody left the water dripping, we'd have no pressure for fighting fires. That becomes a problem as well, and we're ju you're just wasting water. Uh, if you simply get the pipes wrapped and protected, you'll be just fine. Oh, one last thing. If you're like me and you got some little, I got the, the little fruit trees I need to go cover up, do not cover them in plastic. Now, if you're going to build a tent where the plastic's not touching anything, yes, you can use plastic. But if the plastic touches your plants, it's as good as putting nothing on it because the temperature goes right through that plastic. Uh, if you use it as a tent, then it can build the heat inside the tent and protect it. But any place where the plastic touches a leaf, the freeze, it, that leaf is frozen at that point. Uh, cloth doesn't do that, and that's the reason it's typically recommended to use you know, sheets or blankets or whatever to cover your plants. Just a little tidbit of information there. But again, if you, if you need to use plastic, that's fine, but you got to build a tent so the plastic isn't touching the leaves of the plant because that just transfers the cold right through it. Hello, wondering if you could tell me what kind of grade of gravel works best for an extra spot of parking next to the driveway. Just going to do myself as soon as cold is gone, right before spring. Thank you very much. Well, actually, I wouldn't use gravel. 
I would use crushed limestone or crushed concrete. Now, the reason I wouldn't use gravel, gravel will never pack. It's always loose, and so as you drive on it, it's always trying to move. If you use a crushed limestone, there's a lot of powder fines in it. Same with crushed concrete. And when you uh, <clears throat> get it in place, you pack it down, it gets wet, it binds together. And it creates just a solid mass there. So it, it's you don't have to worry about things moving around. You don't get these little gravels you know, that get picked up with the lawnmower. It's just easier to maintain. So either crushed limestone or concrete. Now, as you're putting it in, you're going to want to make it thick enough that you don't have to worry about it sinking down into the soil. So when you dig out the soil, wherever you're going to put this, Usually I tell people take it down six to eight inches. And then when you're putting in the limestone or crushed concrete, put it in in like two to four inch lifts, two to four inches thick at a time, and pack it. You can get one of these little uh, wacky packs that you can put down on it that you it vibrates as it's walking around on the, the surface packing it. And do that in two to four inch lifts. You'll have a nice solid surface that you won't have to worry about for years to come. Stephen Richardson, how are you today? Hey, I'm great, Jim. Are you ready for the new year? I am absolutely ready for a new year. <laughs> with, <laughs> all the, year. with all the weather stuff we've had this year and all the natural disasters and all that kind of stuff, I'm looking for a more calm 2018. <laughs> I would go along with that. Thank you. <laughs> hey, actually, I have two questions. You have time for both. But uh, the absolutely. first one, I told your screener, um, is that I had uh, I have a dishwasher that to uh, that periodically, which is a problem. It doesn't do it all the time. Seems to back up uh, in overflow in that uh, would you call it a breather that's up on top by the sink, uh-huh. breather tube, and it just it overflows in the rinse cycle uh, when it's probably uh, emptying the dishwasher. It comes out there. Okay. The cause for that? Is it dumping into the garbage disposal? Uh, well, I, I do run the garbage disposal each time before, uh, but no, it's the the breather is actually on the opposite side from my. Uh, I got a right, double but, sink. It's on the opposite side of my garbage disposal. Well, what that what that breather is is an is a uh, basically a. It serves the purpose of your P trap. It's an air check, so that material doesn't you know back up into the. Oh, into the system itself. But uh-huh. it sounds like what's happening is the line going from that air gap down to the garbage disposal must be getting a block in it. Now, it could be something as simple as over the years some mildew has grown in it uh, to somewhere along the line, like maybe running the garbage disposal, something slung up in there and got wedged in there. But realistically, what I would look at doing is just disconnecting that tube from the garbage disposal and from the air gap valve take it out clean it out put it back in and it probably will solve your problem okay okay great that sounds like something i can even do yeah. appreciate that uh and and the other question uh is uh maybe a landscaping question so i don't know if that's in your expertise but uh uh i i have um, a kind of a, a valley um in between my yard and neighbor's yard uh, and we live in, and we live on a hill, so it, uh, it's terraced. And right. 
that water, of course, continues to run down and dig a hole uh, below the, you know, it, it gets running pretty hard with some of our great Texas rains and uh, digs a hole out there. Is there an uh, easy, simple fix to that type of thing that uh, that doesn't look too bad? How big a hole are we talking about? Oh, I've let it go. It's probably uh, maybe uh, two feet across and, and uh, maybe a foot deep, maybe oh my. 18 inches. Okay. And this is just running down to the road, right? Uh, yes, it runs out into the street. That's correct. Okay. You got a couple of choices you can do then. One, it sounds like the water must be rushing through there pretty fast to be to be eroding the soil. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, it's got a pretty good run at it. Yeah. Yeah. So you can dig out that uh, area a little bit and put gravel down. Uh, you know, use like an inch and a half or two inch, two and a half inch rock. You know, bigger rock like that. And what that does is it lets the water go through the rock. But it it doesn't let it flow so fast that it's taking the soil with it any longer. Now, the downside to that is now you've got a bed of rock down through there to look at. They True. make also a concrete mat, and basically it 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 kind of looks like uh, they use an egg carton to pour concrete. They've got lead wires going from one cube to the next, and so it's a flexible mat that you can. Dig down where you need it, lay this mat down. Well, grass will grow up through the open sections and eventually bury it, but the water can still run over it without taking the soil out. Hmm, okay. All right, that sounds good. I appreciate it very much, Jim. You bet, Steve, and you have a happy new year. And same to you, sir. John, welcome <clears throat> to Texas Home Improvement. How can I help you? Well, good morning, her. I guess it's afternoon, ain't it, Jim? It's afternoon now. It's 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 after... Well, it's after one o'clock, so. Uh-huh, yeah. Hey, I was noticing a roofing, a roofing question. Okay. I was noticing uh, uh, some roofers doing a house down the street from my place. They replaced the decking, and then they applied the, I guess you'd call it the rollout radiant barrier, you know, uh-huh. combining the rolls on top of the decking, and then they put down the uh, the paper before they did the roof. Okay. Is that the right way to do that? Would that is that you know, is that the right way to do that? Or is it okay to do it that way? Uh, it, it is okay to do it that way as long as they're using the right radiant barrier. You know, there's there's like tons of different types of radiant barriers. And if you uh-huh. use a multi layer system with a thermal break in the middle that is designed uh-huh. to be sandwiched in between materials uh, it works uh-huh. very well. In fact, if you've got a, a a room with a cathedral ceiling, that's really the best way to make sure you get a radiant barrier. Well, this is, uh, from what I could glean from the packaging, this, type, this product was actually, I think it's the kind that you see where you staple it up underneath the rafters of the house. Yeah, just a single ply? Uh, with that, I could not tell you. That yeah, I, you re- you really it's hard to tell when you when you first look at the at the the things you really have to you know look at the packages and see if it's the multi layer and you know what what uh, descriptions it gives as far as where its usability is for uh-huh. uh, because some of them are designed where you have to have dead airspace and in, in other words it's designed to be on that roof rafter and then have uh-huh. open airspace others are designed to be sandwiched in. Ma- between materials 
and just vaguely looking at them, you really don't tell the difference. Now, when you start handling the product and things like that, you can feel the difference. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. So I guess it would be uh, maybe if I could get a little piece or sample of the product, maybe. Uh, yeah. Yeah, what, what you'll find is if, if it's the single ply, it, it's almost like a mylar. It's, it's very thin and flimsy. Uh-huh. And if it's the multi-layer systems, it, it's like when you get into take two or three sheets of the heavy-duty aluminum foil and put put uh-huh. them together, it, it becomes very kind of rigid-like. That's the multi-layer okay. systems then. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot, Jim. You bet, John. Have a happy new year. Hey, you too. Let's head out to Paris, Texas. I'm assuming this is Paris, Texas. Chet, how are you? I'm doing just fine, Jim. Hey, I live in a 1960 small 24 by 48 wood frame house, and it's time to replace some boards on the front of it where it faces the west. When you talk about radiant barriers, is that just for the roof, or is there something that I could put when I replace I want to take those, all the boards off, put in some new insulation, and I was mm-hmm. wondering about the radiant barrier. Absolutely, you can put radiant barriers uh, on, the, on the walls behind that way. You know, those multi-layer systems I was just talking about, on new construction— if if you do the entire house, uh, you can save between forty and sixty percent on the utility bills. Uh, now, it, it makes it makes a huge difference. What exactly is the radiant barrier? Is that the foam board or what is that? Now, a radiant barrier is a uh, metal type material that actually stops the heat transfer. It blocks up to ninety seven percent of the the heat penetrating through the material, so it makes your insulation work much easier in in other words the insulation doesn't have to be fighting the sun all the time or in the winter months fighting the cold what happens in the winter months yes your your heat will start going through the insulation but once it hits the radiant barrier it stops it and maintains the heat in the insulation in the summer months it does just the opposite the heat never gets into the insulation so your air conditioning uh keeps the insulation cool uh, you know, lowering your utility bills. Is that something I can go to the lumberyard and ask for, or how, can I do it myself? So I'm trying to say. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, Radiant Bears is a is a great do-it-yourself project. Uh, some of the lumberyards do carry it. Uh, you can call DFW Radiant Barrier and Insulation, and uh, they're more than happy to ship it to you as well. Okay, and as far as I live on an old farm road and then the house is a lot of noise. I know replacing the windows will help, but is there a better insulation for soundproofing? Spray foam insulation is is the best for soundproofing. Okay. All right. Thank you, Jim. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Take All care. Right, Jack, how are you today? I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Uh, quick question. Um, we had a flood in our townhouses and some of the people are saying the firewall between the townhomes don't have to come out, and others say it does, and I need confirmation with you. It depends on what material it was built out of. It's a type of sheetrock. It's, it's soft, but it's about an inch thick. Okay. Uh, if it's a sheetrock material, if, if the other sheetrock in the units got ruined to where they have to come out, so does the firewall. Okay. All right. 
even though you paint it with uh, bleach and anti mold and all that. And well, that, that's why I say it. If it, it really all depends on on the other sheetrock if it came out. But the thing you have to remember, there may be insulation behind that as well. Normally, there's not between the firewalls, no. but there's you don't no know insulation. Them. I've drilled okay. through it, and there's like two pieces of special sheetrock put together. Right. Yeah. It, it's normally uh, five eighths sheetrock that's uh, okay. layered. And l let me ask you a couple quick questions. You say you drilled sure. through it. How much water was in the structure? Uh, we got up to two and a half feet. Okay. And is the sheet is the sheetrock soft or di or did it stay firm? Well, it doesn't matter where. Uh, even way above the water line, it's still soft. It's got to come out. Okay. Already. Yeah, once it's soft, it's done. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Understood. Sorry Thank about that, much. Jack. Appreciate it. You bet. Yep. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. And and you know that's the unfortunate thing about uh, flooding when you have apartment complexes and townhomes and condominiums, things like that. Shared walls become a real problem. Got a question? Seven one three two one two five eight. 74 that's 713-212-5874 and of course outside the Houston area 866-937-0003 real quick again on that that uh, fire rock typically fire rock is a just a sheetrock material it's thicker is all and and sometimes they add some type of fire retardant to it but it's usually just a thicker sheetrock so if it gets soft, it's lost all their, you know, structural uh, integrity, which means it won't stop the fire anyways. So take it out, and it's no different though than any other sheetrock. It can, it needs to be taped and floated. When you take it out, because uh, he mentioned it was two layers thick. If you're taking it out, you don't want to have a straight joint between both layers. Even though you're going to tape and float it, just like you would any other sheetrock stagger the joints so the first you, you'll you'll cut it first through both layers when you get up to solid rock again and then go up another 12 inches or so and cut just the first layer of sheetrock so that you have a staggered joint uh it just helps on the fire retardation and and really that's the whole thing that it's for is if one unit catches fire to minimize it from going into the other unit and causing damage. David from New Bronzeville, how are you today? Okay, hey Jim, uh, we're actually selling our house here across the road from you, and I'm going to be building, we're going to be building down in the New Braunfels area, and I had a question, you talked, because I've been hearing you all the way from the Metroplex, I heard you your first two hours, you were talking about radiant barrier. Yeah. We previously built a house, and we used the rate, the OSB with radiant barrier, it was down on the coast in Corpus Christi, and uh, I, I actually used it on the walls. Now, is that product the same as that roll you've been talking about? I hear you talk about it on your show a lot. Well, when you use the uh, the deck board that has the ply on it, it is a yeah. radiant barrier. It has to have a dead air space for that one. Okay. And so, yes, it does the exact same thing, but you got to have a dead air space. Uh, there's a lot of different types of radiant barriers. I had to, what started all that was a call I had about putting a radiant barrier under some shingles. 
And you know, right. the guy said, right. I, yeah, I just I remember that. He, yeah. he was asking about that. Yeah. Yeah. And you can do that if you have the right radiant barrier. It's got to be a multi-layer system with a thermal break in order to be able to sandwich it in between materials. But that's oh. why they make like 20 different types of radiant barriers because okay. all of them do different things. Okay. We're planning on, on getting a metal roof when we build down there. Would that, would that process work with a metal roof? Absolutely. I would still recommend you put a radiant barrier because the metal itself will get hot when the sun is beating on it. And what the radiant barrier does is stop that radiant heat that that metal roof puts out from going, continuing on into the attic space. Okay. What about the walls? Because I was planning on using radiant barrier on the walls down there. Would it be, would you advise the the OSB or is it better to get the roll and, and just tack it on? I personally always use the roll, and and I'll oh, give you an roll. example. We've got one at the Deer Lease in East Texas that we yep. did the walls, we did the ceilings, we did everything. And, you know, my goodness, you can light a candle in there and keep the place warm. I mean, it, it really yep. it really changes it. And I had a guy call me, oh, gosh, it's probably six, seven years ago now, uh, because I've always touted radiant barriers. And he did a house where he put two layers of radiant barriers, one behind the siding, one behind the sheetrock. No uh -huh. insulation in the house at all. And he was running an electric bill in the summer months out in the pure open sun, no trees around the house or anything, yep. of between 60 and $80. Wow. Wow. I don't even get that in the wintertime. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, I had that question. Does Trey do work around that area in the San Antonio area, New Braunfels area? Yes, he does. Okay, good. Good. I'm actually yeah. headed to Leak City. I got a daughter down in Leak City. Uh, can you go up and uh, check my house across the road? I turned the water off <laughs> and I ran the kitchen sink. And then I went to one of the bathrooms and, and the kitchen sink took forever to drain. So I thought maybe I had turned it off right. Yeah. Eventually it stopped. Now, I live in those houses across from you on 407 in Lantana. Okay. So it's. It's about a tip. Do you think I would have a problem? Because we're going to be gone for about eight, nine days. If you shut the water off, uh, you left the heat on in the house, right? Yeah, I left it at 60. You'll be fine. Okay, good. Okay, you don't, you don't have to run up to my house, yeah? Okay. But since, <laughs> I, right, since, since I got you on the phone, you know, maybe you got some yep. stuff I could use. What's the address? I'm not uh, teasing not you. <laughs> <laughs> You t you take care and have a good my, trip, I, I David. I give you my address on the phone. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wasn't going to let you do that. <laughs> okay, man. Appreciate we'll it. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. All right. Hey, Charles. Welcome to KTRH. How can I help you? Water heater in the attic. I was going to get one of those um, valves that automatically shut when you get moisture. I think it's called flood stop or something. Yes. Well, what are your thoughts on those? Oh, man. They, they are wonderful. i got to be honest. I've got my water heater in my attic. And last week, I started getting a drip, and that valve shut my water heater off. Now, I have an instant water heater, uh, you know, a tankless. And mm -hmm. so when it shuts off, you ain't got no hot water to finish that shower. Uh, <laughs> and so that part wasn't so nice, but it kept the, it kept the house from getting flooded. Uh, what had happened on mine was just a, a, an O-ring had gone bad. And it started dripping, and just that little drip put enough moisture in there to cut it off. Uh, I recommend, 
if you got a water heater in an attic, make sure you got a pan under it and got that moisture sensor in that pan so the minute that thing starts to, to drip, it cuts off because uh, that pan's only going to hold so much water if that water heater breaks. Uh, on, on your experience with the water heaters, they kind of like start dripping. They don't catastrophically fail. They just kind of drip. Mine's like 28 years old. That's why. <laughs> your water heater's 28? Yeah. I've got, wow. I've got water softener. Yeah. Not water, but I got, I got a hot water. I got a water softener. I think that's what keeps it going. You know, they can catastrophically break, but usually they'll start getting a drip somewhere first before they catastrophically break. The problem is, though, when you're using a tank-type water heater, like I say, you got a 40-gallon tank-type water heater, it starts leaking, and, you know, it may be a week before it breaks, or it can be a month, it can be an hour, but the problem is when it does break, that's 40 gallons that comes out pretty darn quick. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope it's money. I hope it's money I've wasted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's one of those things you hope you never have to use. Yep. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Have a happy new year, Charles. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, if you're and if you're installing a new water heater, a lot of municipalities now are requiring those uh with with the installation of a new water heater. So, I really I recommend it on all water heater installs. Uh, Do West Plumbing when we put one in, we normally try to put one of those on with it because it's it, it's just a great safety tool. Kevin, welcome to KTRH. Hi, thanks for taking my call. My pleasure. Piggybacking on uh, what uh, the previous caller was talking about, the uh, I just recently bought a house that had flooded uh, in uh, Hurricane Harvey. It's completely gutted. I was told that it had nine feet of water in it during Ooh. the flood. And uh, it's a waterfront lot. And uh, so a couple of questions I have. You know, one of the ideas that I had is to be able to either use the the first floor that's actually there. It's a single-story house anyway. And build on top of it. Or if that's not feasible, just to raise it to the ground and just build on the slab that's already there sort of like a beach house what's your what's your thoughts on that is that crazy nutty or not at all no not not at all uh nuts now uh, if you're going to build on what's there you're probably going to have to reinforce what's there uh obviously you got to take the roof off and and go up with the second floor and build a new roof and all that stuff and truthfully by the time you do all that you'd be probably better off to knock it off the slab, build block walls on the bottom, and then put your structure up on top. Okay. And so, then you don't have to worry about the wood walls getting wet any longer when it does flood. Because if you got nine feet in the house, it obviously is going to flood again. Yeah, probably so. And it's, this is the third time it's flooded since 1994, I was told. But, yeah. of course, this was the worst, absolute worst yep. um, flooding. Now, for, for, for people who want to do it, you know, it is possible to raise the houses up out of floodwaters. You, you I've done a bunch of them where we actually go underneath the slab, underpin everything, and raise the entire structure up 
uh, including the slab. Just raise, raise yep. the whole slab up. Yep. And wow. there's a lot of people who, like in the Meyerland area and places like that, where they have to do it now in order to even get their permits to rebuild the house. And so, yes, Due West does that kind of work. And uh used to be it was all done. We did our first one back in 1989, and we went nine and a half feet down on Taylor Lake. And uh, at that point, it was all done with bottle jacks picking it up. Now we use a Unilift system to to pick it up, and it goes so much faster. Ah, so you can raise the entire slab even that far? Yep. Wow. Okay, well, that's amazing right there. I just almost want to see that happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, when we're doing one, I'm going to be posting some videos of it, so you'll, okay. you'll get a chance to take a look at it. Well, fantastic. I'll definitely look for that. All right. Kevin, if you, if, you know, if you get into questions when you start looking at what you want to do, by all means, call us at Due West. We're more than happy to talk to you about it, okay? Fantastic. I'll do just that because I know I'm going to have a ton of questions. No problem. You take care and have a happy All new right. year. And you too. Thank you. What should I look for in a reputable chimney sweep contractor, and how often should a chimney be cleaned? Recommendations in Fort Worth area would be appreciated. Thank you. All right. Mark, what you're looking for is, one, a chimney sweep who's part of the Chimney Guild. Uh, that's basically the Association for Chimney Sweeps. It shows that he's got the knowledge to do what needs to be done. It's not as simple always as just go in and clean the chimney. And, yeah, if there's nothing ever wrong with the, the fireplace or the chimney, anybody can clean it. But you need somebody who's got the knowledge to be able to look uh, down the fireplace or down the chimney, rather, and see if there's any flaws in there that need to be addressed. Because the last thing you need is flames going out through an open joint or something and setting the house on fire. So that's why you're looking for someone who's part of the chimney guild. Now, most reputable uh, chimney sweep companies, they're going to be part of the chimney guild, So, or at least the individuals that are doing the work are. So that's where you want to start. As far as uh, how often, a lot of it depends on what you burn in there. You know, people don't realize that, but uh, if you're burning oak, a good hardwood like oak, it doesn't have to be cleaned as often as, as if you're burning trash trees. Uh, you know, other in other countries, they burn a lot of pine and things like that, and you've got to clean after that on a regular basis. I have relatives in Germany who they use wood burning to heat the house, do a lot of their cooking, things like that. And they have their fireplace chimneys, or not just the fireplace chimneys, the chimneys themselves, whether it's for the stove or for the heat, cleaned every three months because they use a lot of pine. When you're burning a lot, a lot of oak, you really don't have to do it all that often. Anywhere from two to four cords of wood, which is a lot of wood. I really enjoy your show. Here's my problem. 18-inch floor tiles in our kitchen started making loud popping sound and several detached from the foundation. I see no sign of water damage. Doors are not deformed. Walls, concrete under tiles, and concrete floor in the garage nearby are not cracked, i.e. there is no indication of foundation problems. I removed one piece of tile and noticed a very thin eighth-inch layer of thinset. 
It seems that some contractor took a shortcut. Affected area is located in the middle of the house between kitchen island and cooktop. Is it possible that it's related to temperature fluctuation? Tiles were installed in 1998 and has never been flooded. Best regards, Merrick. Well, Merrick, uh, I don't think it's an installation problem. We're talking 20 years ago, the floor was installed. That, that's that gone way beyond being an installation problem. Uh, you actually hit it on the head when you brought up the temperature fluctuations. The thing you have to remember, concrete expands and contracts with temperature changes. So does tile. And right now when we get, you know, like earlier in the week, you know, it didn't come so fast, but uh, two weeks ago it did. We had a 30-degree drop in one day. And anytime you have rapid temperature changes like that, the concrete is going to expand and contract at a different rate than the tile because the tile is actually being protected by air conditioning and heating versus the concrete that is not. And the concrete is actually exposed outside to the temperatures. So it tends to move at a different rate than the tile, and it'll break that thin set loose. And... Think about the name of it, thin set. An eighth inch of it, eight, that's not unusual. That's all it's supposed to have is just a little layer there to basically glue the tile down. Uh, I really think all you ended up with was uh, 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 what happens from the temperature changes. Now, normally what happens when the temperature changes is the tile pops and forms a little pup tent. Uh, it literally stands up about two to three inches, and people just freak out. I get all kinds of calls every time we get really rapid-moving cold fronts, and I think that's what you're dealing with. So the, as far as to cure, it's basically you have to reattach the floor. Now, they do make some mats that you can put down that give it some elasticity, gives you a little bit of give between the concrete and the tile, and that absorbs that minor movement without allowing the tile to pop up. Most contractors don't put it in because it costs extra money and they're too lazy to offer it to you when they're selling you the tile because they think everybody's always just looking at the absolute cheapest way to get the job done and that would cost more money instead of thinking that, okay, what's going to make this job last the most and make it in an option. And I wish more contractors would get into making some of these things options. And I think over time they may, but that day isn't here yet. I had a, kind of an interesting email. If I get a six inch foundation for a metal building, what is the correct way to form the two inch recess around the edge? Well, if you're putting up a metal building as a storage shed, I mean, you got two ways of doing this. One, you just use a two by two or a two by four, depending on how much, how wide of edge you need, and you put it into the form, and that recesses down around the, the edge of the concrete. And when you pour the concrete, you make sure you vibrate it to, to fill in underneath it well. The other, you just have the sheet metal siding hang down over the edge of the concrete. Either way, you're getting the, the wall down below the floor inside. Now, I will tell you, typically... You're not doing this with six-inch concrete, though. You're doing it with concrete that's got a beam around the perimeter, four-inch concrete going across. And depending on the size of the building, you may have cross beams as well. 
So it really is just going to depend on the size of the building. If you're only doing, say, a 10 by 10 or 10 by 12 shed, yeah, you're just going to have a perimeter beam. You're doing a 10 by 20, you would have one cross beam uh, in order to uh, shorten up the distance uh, and, and keep that slab a little stiffer. We're going to take a quick break for news, traffic, and weather here on KRLD, and then we'll be back with more Texas home improvement. I want to go over some uh, stuff with the thermostats real quick because we were talking about heat pumps and uh, electric heats and stuff with the emergency heat button showing up. If you have gas heat, you won't have an emergency heat uh, indicator show up. That's only if you have an all-electric system and if you have a heat pump system. And what the heat pump does is actually works your compressor and I'm going to do this in basic terms. It takes the compressor from your air conditioner, works it in reverse to pull the heat out of the air, transfer it into the home to heat you. And, and basically, it's not taking the air from outside into the home. It's simply pulling through the coils. The warm air heats up the tubes and sends it up to the tube that, or to, to the coil that's in the attic, and the air handler pushes air over that whether it's in the closet or, or in the attic, pushes air over that, which is warmed up, and that pushes warm air into the house. So that's, I mean, that's a real basic way that a heat pump system works. Older heat pump systems, once you hit 36 degrees outside, would convert over to emergency heat. And they call it emergency heat, but it really, it's the same thing as your conventional heat. If you didn't have a heat pump, you have heat strips. Well, older systems at 36 degrees, the heat strips would kick in because the heat pump wasn't able to handle colder temperatures. The newer heat pump systems, actually, they drop down. Uh, some of them are dropping down near zero nowadays. I mean, they get very, very far down. But depending on the age of your system and how it's set up, at some point, if you have an all-electric system and a heat pump, at some point you'll see that emergency heat come on. That only All that means is your electric heat strips have kicked on, and that, that's now what's providing your heat. As much as possible, you want to use the heat pump heat because it is far less expensive to operate than using the heat pump. I mean, I mean than using the strip heat. It costs about a third the cost of the strip heat to run the heat pump. And that's the reason, uh, you know, the, the heat pump systems are so economical and recommended in our climate. I mean, if you get down into Corpus Christi, for instance, I would not recommend a heat pump system. You just don't use your heat enough to justify the cost of a heat pump. But in our climate, hey, we use our heaters several months out of the year. It does save enough to make up that difference. You've just heard the best calls and questions from Texas Home Improvement. For more information about our show, go to THIPro.com.